Welcome to the Norfolk Heritage Centre podcast. This week, Professor Claire Preston of Queen Mary University London gives us an entertaining insight into the curious words of Sir Thomas Brown. So my name's Marion. Um, I got drawn into Thomas Brown ten years ago when I was involved. I used to work for the City Council, and I was involved in um, getting the the big the marble brain eye and the set of sculptures that are in fact called the homage to Thomas Brown, um, which were commissioned by the City Council, the Arts Council, County Council, um, as a. a well, in fact, originally it was for a piece of public artwork that was, was meant to be uh, relating to the forum, but the money got passed around and it went from the forum uh, to the marketplace and then from the marketplace um, to, to Hay Hill, and the artists had to do new, commission, new designs for each uh, place that they were allocated. But um, Hay Hill was the place that they finally made the work for, and they realised in their research that um, it was the place that... Thomas Brown, um, it was his, his uh, patch, I suppose, because he lived where Fred Manger is and he's buried in St. Peter Mancroft Church, as probably most of you know. So they, they made the uh, homage to Thomas Brown uh, in that area and it was commissioned as street furniture, in fact. A lot, a lot of people sort of say, oh, it's, you know, people climb all over it. Well, that's exactly what was meant to happen. They were meant to be. Uh, it was meant to be a living room for the city. That that was the concept uh, for the artists. Um, that they created a place to sort of where people could meet and talk and think about things, which were all very sort of Brownian activities. <coughs> so, but the um, the that uh, work w- it was installed in 2007. So you know, pretty much exactly 10 years ago. And because of the financial crisis, the money that was meant to interpret it. Um, never got um, it, it got hoovered up into some other budget to fill a hole somewhere. So there's never been any signage on Hay Hill. And about three or four years ago, someone from the Norwich Society, who you think would have known better, but anyway didn't, was a newcomer to Norwich, and said, well, they should all be removed because um, they've got no local relevance. And whilst, <laughs> whilst it was slightly egg on their face because they have, had obviously not done any research at all, at the same time, I couldn't really blame them because why would they know if you didn't know? So um, I I looked around. There was lot. There's lots of information on the on the web, but not one single place where you can go and find out about Thomas Brown, or not that I could find. So um, that that's my, that's my story about why I'm involved in Sir Thomas Brown. You you will you've all come here for one reason or another. You'll have all had a different route um, into Thomas Brown. Claire here, who's our, our speaker, has um, probably you know one of the biggest, deepest knowledges of Thomas Brown. And Hugh, who's over there, also wrote the very um, excellent book, The Adventures of Sir Thomas Brown in the 21st Century, which uh, there's a copy of here. And really that book was my journey in, because one of the things I found about Thomas Brown is that amongst the people who are able to study... His, his original text, they get very, they swoon, they get very um, carried away by it. But for us lesser mortals, it's quite hard work to, to kind of get in there. And I found that Hugh's book enabled me to 
kind of unravel what each each of the works was about so that then I mean I still haven't read an original Thomas Brown work but I read pages and I can start to I'm starting on that journey of being able to sort of read Brown for myself and I'm also told that the way to really appreciate Brown is to hear hear him uh, spoken out loud uh, or to even read it aloud yourself so um, so anyway, there's a website which, you know, there's, I put some flyers and things up there, there's, um, there's a website, so that's a good, that's where I'm collecting any links to Brown, any articles, any, you know, so do feel free to send me stuff, it's, the idea is it's a kind of Thomas Brown kind of hub, to use a, a word that is a bit overused in these, this day and age. So, um, and, and then out of that, well, I, I got in contact with Claire and Hugh and various other people and this kind of set of events around Sir Thomas Brown Day has, has grown. So I didn't actually set out intending to coordinate a whole load of events and you know have matchsticks holding my eyes open and things. Um, but you know this is the first year that we've done this and it's um, uh, it's not the first year there've been various celebrations before but not on an annual basis. So hopefully this will be the beginning of some more. So uh, I'm, I'm just holding this up because here's a list of the other events um, that are, maybe at the end, if we've got a few minutes, I'll, I'll just remind you what they are. There's a display in the library. So I want to say thank you to Sarah here at the library as well. There's a display there of various original texts and documents and also one up on the second floor from tomorrow, I think, or but it will be viewable tomorrow. So that's just a little bit of background and so now I want to introduce Claire so well, as I as I mentioned uh, so Claire Preston uh, Professor Claire Preston um, is a professor of Renaissance literature correct me if I get anything wrong Claire at uh, Queen Mary University of London and is also um, leading a team of 13 academics who are or thereabouts who are editing a new Complete works of Thomas Brown, which is uh, funded by the AHRC. Um, so, sorry, the what? AHRC, the um, Arts, Arts and Humanities Research Council. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> and um, uh, which is a great thing. I think it's a great thing for Norwich because you know Thomas Brown is a is someone that's really associated with Norwich, and it was it was funny at the launch. There's an exhibition at the moment at um, the Royal College of Physicians, and I went to the launch. Uh, in January, and it was funny hearing people sort of refer to this place, Norwich, that they obviously didn't know and we know so very well. So, but I'm going to hand over to Claire, who will tell you a bit more about her work and talk about um, Thomas Brown and his words. Thank you, Mary, and thank you everybody for turning up on this horrid, damp day. Um, I'm always impressed by the energy of people to come out at night when I'd probably be cowering by the fire. So, um, thanks again. Um, uh, I have put, uh, which I hope is rather more visible than the one I had earlier with a very unflattering green. Um, that's a sort of, that's my attempt at a word cloud. It's obviously not a proper word cloud. You can tell I'm a computer idiot. But anyway, that's uh, just some of Thomas Brown's um, words. And I'm going to be talking about some of them and um, telling you some things about why he should have wished to create new words. But I'm going to start by saying a little bit more about <coughs> Brown generally to situate him in 17th century culture and indeed in Norwich. Um, tomorrow, the 19th would, have, would be his 412th birthday. Um, and 
today or um, I suppose tomorrow, but today starts the inaugural celebration of the man who really is uh, your most remarkable and influential literary citizen. Um, and um, he's terrifically influential throughout the history of English literature from his own day, and his first publications were in the 1640s until, until this year. Um, just a few of the people who cited him as one of their great influences, John Dryden, Samuel Johnson, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, Herman Melville, Edgar Allan Poe, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Henry David Thoreau, a lot of Americans, um, but also Bram Stoker, E.M. Forster, J.B. Priestley, who um, actually wrote a little short story about some, a, a sort of ghost story with Thomas Brown in it. Um, Edward Elgar, who wrote one of his Enigma Variations uh, based on uh, Religio Medi oh, no, sorry, on Urn Burial, and Virginia Woolf, uh, and W.E. Zabald. And that's just a selection. There are many, many others. Um, but for all his influence on our canon canonical um, literary culture, he's surprisingly little known outside a very small section of academia. Uh, in other words, dreary people like me who pedantically worry about making his work um, better known. Um, in Norwich, as Marion has already said, he's got two significant monuments. Uh, in, uh, on Hay Hill, as well as uh, historical presence in a few other plaques and things around the city. I've certainly seen one or two, his garden, and his meadow, and so on. Um, and yet hardly anyone in Norwich, as far as I know, knows really who he is or what he did, and still fewer have uh, read his remarkable works. And um, so although, as a Brown fan, I'm surprised that this is the first time that Norwich has undertaken to celebrate its most famous literary son, Many others might be wondering who this guy is that we're bothering to celebrate after such, uh, after such long neglect. Um, and I want to thank Marion for being the driving force and you know, heroic maker of uh, a lot of what's going to go on from tonight onward. And I hope in perpetuity on behalf of Norwich uh, heritage activities. This is a very important bit of Norwich heritage. Um, and for her decision to really get down to brass tacks and make a ballyhoo about Sir Thomas. And I hope that what she's initiated is uh, going to become a happy fixture in the city's cultural calendar from now on. And I'm very delighted and honored to be able to be part of the first uh, installment. So thank you very much, Marion. Um, it's not every city, and particularly not every city the size of Norwich, which, you know, after all, is not London or Manchester or Leeds in size, that can boast such a luminary as Dr. Brown. Um, so I think we should all be very proud of him and the place that fostered his immense talent. Still, many people might want to know who on earth he is. Um, let me try and make sure I can actually run that. Yay. Okay. I think everything's going to be okay. Um, for almost 50 years, Norwich was the adopted home of Sir Thomas Brown. Uh, who is one of the literary stars of the 17th century. He's buried in St. Peter Mancroft. That's the plaque above the place where he lies. Uh, and um, as you know, St. Peter Mancroft is one of the most splendid parish churches in England. Um, and the, and um, <clears throat> he has the um, two statues, one for the tercentenary of his birth, uh, that one, uh, in 1905, and then the one that Marion just described, the, the outdoor living room, 
um, uh, both significant mo monuments in Haymarket. Um, this one shows him uh, contemplating a funerary lamp, which is the subject, among other things, of one of his most famous works, which is Urn Burial. Um, the other, as you, I'm sure, all know, is a much more abstract composition, and it's based particularly on his fascination with the figure of five or the quincunx, the the, the, the shape, a, a quincunx is a diamond shape or a lot what they would have called a lozenge shape with a, and if you put a dot in the middle and then count each, well, they aren't exactly corners, but each angle as a dot, you get a figure of five, and that's the quincunx. And um, his other very fascinating work, well. They're all fascinating, but one of his most fascinating works, called *The Garden of Cyrus* or *De Quincunx*, is about figures of five in nature. Ah, uh, let's see. Brown was not, however, a native of Norwich. He was born in 1605 in Eastcheap, in the city of London, and only a few yards from the old St Paul's Cathedral, which was, of course rebuilt in 1666, uh, from 1666 after the Great Fire. Now, so of course the one that we see is not the one that Brown would have known, um, except possibly on a very late trip to London in his old age when it was um, under construction. Uh, 1605, his year of birth, was also the year of Francis Bacon's epoch-making advancement of learning. Now the advancement of learning is um, essentially a kind of, um, I suppose we would call it a kind of white paper. It's about how to proceed in the um, prosecution of experimental science. It's a kind of philosophical work telling scientists and policymakers what to do. Um, it's about the progress and structure of English science for the next couple of centuries. And remember, the 17th century is the period that we call the period of the scientific revolution. So everything is really gaining a lot of momentum. Uh, from the late 16th century onward. And that probably has a lot to do with the, the kind of Brownian activity that I'm going to be talking about today. So I'll go into that in a minute. Um, and the advancement of learning, Bacon's advancement of learning, was uh, a work that greatly influenced Brown in a whole lot of ways. Um, and of course, Brown's birth uh, tomorrow on the 19th of October falls just a couple of weeks before the discovery of the gunpowder plot. So these are very interesting times that Brown is living in, in very interesting times that he's born into. Brown's father was a relatively well-to-do mercer, that's a silk merchant, and the young Brown, having grown up within um, earshot of not only St. Paul's itself, but the famous preaching place at St. Paul's, St. Paul's Cross, which is where all the great divines, the oratorical divines, people like John Donne and uh, Lancelot Andrews and so on, they all would have preached there. And they, he would have at least been able to hear people, maybe not those two, who knows, but hear people of tremendous oratorical, rhetorical ability, um, uh, wielding their skills uh, for huge crowds. This was the kind of, I don't know, um, stadium rock of its day. You know, you went to Paul's Cross to listen to one of the great speakers. And so it's um, tempting to think that when Brown's very gorgeous and inventive prose style emerged in the late 1620s and the 1630s, um, that, and by the way, that's a kind of metaphysical prose. If, you, if you've ever liked reading John Donne, you'll like reading Brown, although Brown is obviously not writing in verse. It's a very similar kind of complexly image-laden kind of um, writing, very rich. Um, and it's tempting to think that that prose style would have had its genesis at least partly in the, this highly verbal soundscape 
of Cheapside and the cathedral's precinct of the early 17th century. Now, of course, there's no way of proving any of that, but it's, but it's a very interesting thought. And the soundscapes of um, early modern London would have influenced an awful lot of the people whom we now read as the great, um, the great writers of the period. And Brown is probably no different. Well, Pr Brown was born there and lived there, probably went to some kind of dame school of some sort um, uh, up till about the age of 11 when he was sent to Winchester College. Uh, and then he went on to Oxford, um, which lots of Wickhamists did. And there he undertook the, the standard BA, the standard MA. These are um, a, a very set curriculum that hasn't really changed much in, in, in four or 500 years. Uh, but all the while probably taking advantage, in fact we know him to have been taking advantage of um, what we might call extracurricular uh, studies that were available, um, private lessons and, and separate classes that were not part of the university curriculum but were being held by the intellectuals both within and without the university, all working on things like natural philosophy, natural sciences, medicine. Uh, and mathematics, all things that were either studied in a very antiquated way in the university curriculum or weren't studied at all. Um, for example, it's important to remember that until the 19th century there was no such thing as a science degree at any level, uh, in any university in, this, in these aisles, and there are only two universities in England at this point. Um, instead, I mean you could study medicine, but medicine was not medicine as even Brown would have recognized it, and certainly not medicine that we would recognize. Um, the English universities had, to the extent that they had any kind of um, medical curriculum, it was one that would be mired in um, a very antiquated medieval sense of the authorities, the accepted classical and early medieval authorities. And, and these were degrees also that would be um, based on proving proficiency in acquiring your degree through public disputation. Now, um, in many ways, public disputation, you know, having to wield your rhetorical skills in public, um, is a great way to train writers and speakers. And it certainly did do that. But it's not really that helpful for the emerging disciplines of modern science, which are really starting to make themselves felt. So in other words, the, 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 the universities are, are way behind the times at this point. So, and, and their curricula are not, um, helpful for diagnostic or clinical medical studies. They're, everything's being learned out of books. You just hear somebody reading in Latin, and that's your medical education. Um, like many ambitious medical students, therefore, Brown elected to find his professional training, his, in other words, his MD degree, um, on the continent. And that's the place where medical education was far more advanced than in England. So he moved first to Montpellier, and then to Padua, and finally to Leiden, during the course of three years stay in foreign parts. And these three were the three premier medical schools in Europe. Um, and there, uh, and in Leiden, he received his MD in 1633. So as soon as he gets fully qualified, he comes home to England, and he eventually settles, uh, about 18 months, two years later, in Norwich. And remember, Norwich was then the second city of England, second only to London. Um, so a very good place to go and be a doctor. And here he set up general practice. Uh, he first lived in Toonlands, and then he lived in what I th is, I don't know if it's now still called Orford Place, but the place where Pret-a-Manger is, was his second and much grander house when he had you know, made a, a tidy sum being a doctor. Um, and he moved here at the behest of some enthusiastic friends of his who um, 
and, and he moved also to be a learned physician. He was not just a sawbones or a, a leech or one of the very, the very many medical uh, professions which were not um, uh, officially sanctioned and didn't have degrees associated with them. So he was a learned physician. And it was his enthusiastic friends who asked him to come there because um, they thought, as, as, and rightly, that a rich, prosperous place, you know, populous place like Norwich is a very good place to come and practice medicine. You can not only do good work, but you can earn a good living. Um, it's a rich uh, provincial trading city and um, has a population that's able to afford medical treatment. Um, the pity of it is that, um, and Brown was well aware of this, that there's actually precious little that early modern medicine could do for even the simplest of conditions. Um, and this slide, by the way, is from a, a, a serial publication called The Bills of Mortality, and it came out every, came out every week, or, and certainly every month. And it would list the number of dead from various things. So, you know, gangrene, fistula, fever, dropsy, um, colic, the kinds of things that would not probably give us very much trouble today. So it gives you a sense of, you know, what it was like to be subject to the various microbes that were available to the human, uh, the defenseless human body and, and against which medicine of the period had absolutely no, uh, no, no solution. Um, this, um, and, and that incapability colors what Brown, uh, Brown's, well, his sense of his own and of human achievement in the fields of learning. So um, he's, he, his work is very, in some ways very hopeful and very, um, forward-looking, but it's also tinted by, tinged, I suppose, by melancholy, that he knows his own profession is virtually useless. I mean, he can, uh, he could deliver children quite successfully, but of course a learned physician wouldn't. It would be a midwife who would do that. So the really useful things weren't really, for the most part, being done by learned physicians. Well, this is uh, a list, uh, not of every single work, but of his major printed works. Um, in the late 1630s, he, com he composed his curious and very remarkable spiritual autobiography, Religio Medici, that um, uh, was, was pirated in 1642, um, and then uh, he was allowed to make corrections and republish it in an authorized edition in 1643, and that itself is a very interesting episode, which I won't go into, but um, he's very interesting about what it's like to have your work stolen off you, especially not quite finished work. Um, and this work brought him, Religio Medici, the religion of a doctor, brought him almost instant celebrity, and not all of it good, uh, all over England and Europe. Uh, Religio Medici is a kind of extended, it's very young man's work. He's, you know, he's, he's just 30-ish or 32 when he starts writing it, and he, he publishes it when he's a little bit older. But um, it's a young man's work about what it's like to be a Christian and also to be a doctor when in a period when there was a saying that doctors are all atheists. So he, it's really a kind of defense of medical practice as a Christian practice. But it's much more than that, of course. And um, it also uh, uh, enunciates some what I think we would all regard as very commendably tolerant views about everyone and everything. But toleration was not really the watchword of the 17th century. So uh, the left wing, I shouldn't say left wing, but the very hardline Puritans are very angry about Religio Medici. And the Catholics are all really angry about Religio Medici. In fact, he was put on the index prohibitorum of the Pope. You know, it was a, it was a band, it was a, it was a heretical sacrilegious work. Um, 
and if you read it, you can hardly believe that that could be the case, but it was. Um, so it got a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, airplay, so to speak. It was read all over Europe. Everybody wanted it. Everybody read it. Um, this was followed by the mouthful of, an, of a title, Pseudodoxia Epidemica, which means widespread false learning, that in one translation. But it was also generally called vulgar errors, vulgar meaning popular errors rather than um, tasteless errors, as, as, as we would think now. Um, and uh, Pseudodoxia is an enormous compendium of misapprehension. It's a kind of encyclopedia of um, what my um, <coughs> orange-haired leader would probably call fake news, and we might call um, urban myth. Um, and in this book, he consolidates not only all the crackpot stuff that people believe that's wrong, um, but he also consolidated his reputation as one of Europe's leading savants. And here, he was able to demonstrate his vast range of learning in most of the natural sciences, uh, in biblical scholarship, in all kinds of cultural history, uh, and folklore, and I haven't even named everything that he talks about in Pseudodoxia. Um, this is a huge work. Um, it's you know the it's original in its an original format. It's it's a folio volume. It's that thick, so you can imagine the size of it. It's in six books, um, and in his lifetime, it went through four uh, revisions, four editions, in which he revised each one always gathering more and more information that he since come across since the last edition and revising existing versions of what he'd said to take account of the most recent scientific work. So one of the interesting things about looking at um, the, the succeeding editions of Pseudodoxia, which go from about uh, 1646, which is the first one, and his last revised one in his lifetime is 1672. So it's a really nice chunk of the middle of the century. You can see him almost as a working scientist. You can work out what he's, what he's read, what's out and what he's read since the last edition. And you realize that he's really very, very up to the mark on whatever the latest stuff is. And from all over Europe, he's getting all the latest books, he's <coughs> corresponding with all the you know, major scientists who are making new discoveries and making new theories and so on. So you can see, in a way, it's a portrait of a scientific, uh, a developing scientific sensibility and also how scientists were working in the period, not just Brown, but as Brown as a representative scientist. Um, here's a, I hope this will amuse you, a list of uh, topics from Pseudodoxia. That a diamond is made soft or broke by the blood of a goat. <laughs> that the root, these are all, remember, this is all fake news. These are all false beliefs. Um, that the root of mandrakes resembleth the shape of man. That's actually true, but only coincidentally. That they naturally grow under gallows and places of execution that the root gives off a shriek upon eradication. Eradication is a very Brownian word, meaning literally to ex-root it, to eradix for root. Um, that it is fatal or dangerous to dig them up. Uh, and then moving on from mandrakes, that cinnamon, ginger, cloves, mace are but the parts or fruit of the same tree. Um, that mistletoe is bred upon trees from seeds which birds let fall thereon that bays preserve from the mischief of lightning and thunder, that bitter almonds are preservatives against ebriety. <laughs> Wish that were true. Or <laughs> showers of, of showers of wheat, you know, strange events, strange meteor, meteorological events, that a badger hath the legs of one side shorter than of the other. That's apparently so they can, they can walk around hills, you know, so they're on a slope and they have a, 
Anyway, that's Aristotle, by the way, and he's correct huh. in that. Um, that storks will only live in republics or free states. <laughs> um, that children would naturally, in other words, if not taught their mother tongue, would naturally speak Hebrew. That our savior never laughed. <laughs> so that's just a little selection of the kind of thing he's debunking in, uh, in Pseudodoxia. The famous uh, from all over England and Europe came to Norwich to meet the remarkable Dr. Brown, who became Norwich's best-known citizen. And his titles, uh, religious, uh, Religio Medici and Vulgar Errors, became bywords in contemporary writing for religious tolerance on the one hand and scientific learning um, on the other. And scientific learning and indeed practice, because one of the things he does in Vulgar Errors is often to tell you about some experiment that he's actually performed, and he tells you what he did, and you know, what the result was and how it didn't work the first time, so he did it several times to show you that it's not true or that something else is true. Like if you hang up kingfishers, uh, will they tell you, you know, dead kingfishers from a thread, will they, will they act as, comp uh, not compasses, as weather vanes to show you the direction of the wind? And the answer is no. Um, but he tries it. Um, it's, it's very Brownian. Um, subsequent shorter works, which are equally learned, um, uh, include the short essays Earn, Earn Burial. I'll go back to that. Um, hang on. Uh, sorry, I'm in the wrong place here. That's what I'm trying to get to. Um, Earn Burial, uh, or its, it's, it's official mouthful name is Hydriotaphia, another word that he made up, which means burial urn. Um, and Garden of Cyrus. These were published together as two short essays. Uh, Hydriotaphia, Earn Burial is on it's kind of an anthropological work on the history of mortuary customs in all places and all times. So it's in intensely learned. It's incredibly beautifully written as well. I mean, even more so than religia. And the Garden of Cyrus, or De Quincunx, which is about figures of five in nature. And that it's got to be one of the weirdest works ever, ever written in English literature. You never knew there were things that were in the shape of five um, in the abundance that there are until you read this by Brown. Um, these are among my personal favorites, by the way, those, those last two. Um, he also writes some other shorter works, which were all published posthumously, which I won't go into at this point. Um, Brown continued throughout his writing career to practice full-time as a doctor. Um, and that meant not only catering to the well-to-do, who could pay, but also treating the poor for little or nothing. Uh, and we know that Brown would get on his horse at three in the morning and ride out to help somebody who was in trouble, you know. So there was a, there was a lot of, um, you know, uh, shall we say, ph philanthropic treatment, uh, medical treatment, that I think probably all doctors did, but Brown was particularly um, assiduous. He also continued throughout his working life to correspond with some of the greatest scientists, antiquaries, and other doctors of his age, uh, to raise a very large family, and to assemble in his house uh, that's now in what I think is still called Orford Place, um, what John Evelyn described as a cabinet and paradise of rarities. In other words, uh, Evelyn visited it, and if you read Evelyn's diary, he describes it. It's absolutely stuffed to the rafters with eggs and metals and bones and preserved specimens and books and rare manuscripts and medical materials and ongoing experiments of one kind or another. So it's a kind of slightly crazy jumble. Uh, at least according to, 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 uh, to, to Evelyn. Brown was not among the great natural philosophers of his time. Um, 
In other words, he's not one of the breakthrough scientists uh, like Newton or Boyle or Gilbert or Hooke, but he's nevertheless a very competent scientist. Um, and his contribution to science is also very heavily uh, skewed toward the natural historical uh, as well as, or even to a certain extent, instead of the natural philosophical. In other words, he's interested in finding out what's out there and listing it and describing it and making sure we all have access to um, authoritative descriptions and um, names of things, which I'll talk about in a minute. Um, he was, however, knighted by Charles II. Um, though this was almost by accident. It, he was quite old when this happened. It was on a royal visit to Norwich. Uh, that, uh, and the king, of course, you know, the king visits, he's got to give somebody an honor because that's what new kings do. So he's got to bestow it on someone. And the mayor of Norwich had been a parliamentarian during the Civil Wars and refused to accept a knighthood. He was, he was a Republican. So, um, especially not from Charles. So Brown was, you know, hauled out of retirement and wrangled to come in front of the king and be, be given this knighthood at age 72. Um, he's an exquisite and quirky st uh, stylist. Um, and his literary reputation has always been very high among writers. But it's recently also escalated, a little bit anyway, with current scholarly interest in early modern uh, literary science, which is now a, you know, a big thing. Um, uh, and um, it's for that reason, among many, that um, the authoritative, well, I hope it's going to be authoritative, authoritative, we're working very hard at this, an eight-volume edition of the complete works of Brown that I'm actually running. I'm the general editor of it, and I have a whole lot of editors working for me, but I'm also doing some of the editing myself. Um, it's the reason it was being, it was commissioned about six or seven years ago by Oxford University Press, and has also had this really unseemly amount of financial support from uh, the AHRC, the government funding agency, which, by the way, your tax money, so thank you very much. <laughs> Um, he's, um, in unusual fashion, a major figure in English science, uh, but for reasons which are not simply or at all because of his discoveries. Um, and that's really what I want to talk about for the rest of the, uh, the, 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 the discussion. Um, he's a major figure in English science um, because his, but his reclame in his own day was really based on his learning, his almost his book learning, not on his science, or as well on his science, as, uh, on his book learning and on his science. Um, he was very clever in uh, being able to write learnedly about medicine and embryology, antiquarian learning, um, archaeology, theology, ornithology, etymology, ancient history, pharmacy. He knew at least seven languages, three of them ancient, um, and um, a lot of them, and the rest modern. Um, these are only some of his special subjects. Um, he was, in short, the epitome of curiosity. Um, curiosity is a very important early modern word. It means a kind of voracious appetite for understanding and learning. It doesn't just mean you know, being a bit, a bit curious about an odd thing, but being interested in everything. He was uh, eternally curious. Um, his mind and his works constitute a great cabinet of learning. Thomas Brown died in 1682, full of years. So that's a very brief account of who Brown was. Um, I want to spend the rest of the time talking about one particular scientific achievement of Brown's that's part of all our lives, uh, even if we don't realize it. No, that didn't work. There. 
Hmm. We're getting a weird dropout here. That says be howl, in case you don't. Not belowl, but anyway. Uh, Sorry about that. Things never quite turn out the way you think when you're making them on screen. Um, Shakespeare, as we probably all know, was the greatest English literary neologizer in history. And almost everyone knows that he made more new words than any other single person. Uh, Of of course, there are some scientific uh, journals and newspapers that come um, higher than he does, but those are group enterprises and um, made over many years, whereas um, Shakespeare is a single person with a relatively short career. And after Shakespeare, Thomas Brown is the literary writer who is the the next most fertile lexical innovator. Um, And here you can see, and one of the reasons I've put them side by side is not merely to show you the uh, the kinds of words that they come up with, but to show you how different they are. Um, Shakespeare's are mostly all, um, shall we say, they derive from Anglo-Saxon roots. They're, they have Germanic roots. Behowl, silliness, and sky, mammoth, fleckled, and kicky-wicky. Oh, so Shakespearean. Whereas Brown, who's learned and university educated and a doctor, which of course in Shakespeare's none of those things, paralogical, triquetrous, inservient, antediluvian, magnality, ruminating, Cretaceous. These are all Latin or Romance language derived words. So that's a very interesting difference between the two and not a particularly surprising one, but um, it gives you a sense of where Brown is making his contribution. Um, On the screen, you're seeing um, some of Brown's more striking inventions. Um, These are words that we still use. Technology, squamous, seminal, coniferous, tuberous, leguminous, graphically, sterile, cylindrical, hallucination, medical, and medicine, not medicine, but medical, um, electricity, anticipate, sexangular, reticulate, succulent, fiber, radiation, nominal. Some of those are, uh, most of those are not on this list, and that's just ever more of them. So you can see he's, he's a very fertile uh, neologizer, fertile maker of new words. I'm going to be saying a bit about Brown's new words, but let's start by thinking about why a 17th century doctor and essayist needed all these new words, why he needed them at all. Well, one of Brown's most striking new words um, is technology. And we all know what we mean by that word. We mean practical, applied, uh, mechanical arts and sciences. But words in English, as we all know, are not stable. They evolve, they, they, they develop new meanings, they drop out of fashion, new words come into fashion, old words are resurrected for new, new purposes. Um, and technology in the way that we would use that word is not what Brown meant by it. In the 17th century, he, his word technology means technical language, jargon, or the nomenclature of science. Uh, or, or really any subject, actually. Um, it's what we would probably call terminology. So for him, technology is the word he uses to make terminology. Remember, terminology is exactly what Brown needs, and all his fellow scientific investigators um, need it, and they lack it. Um, they don't even have the word techn- uh, terminology at this point, so you can see why uh, Brown is rooting around for some such word. And we can think of Brown as working at the intersection of the literary or linguistic on one hand, you know, he's a fabulous writer, um, and he wrote essays and meditations that have this very powerful imaginative rhetorical element. Um, and on the other hand, he works at on the empirical. Um, he wrote 
some essentially uh, scientific works that had distinctive observational and investigative purposes. So he, he kind of has a foot in both camps, and I think that's incredibly important to understand about him. Um, it had to be somebody like that who could produce <coughs> this kind of um, wordage. So it's no accident that although he was known for being a kind of encyclopedic uh, brain box in his own day, we read him now for his literary poetic qualities. And what I'd like to suggest is that Brown is really a poetic scientist. He's an investigator, a scientific investigator, whose very language is, is part of his toolkit. It's part of his scientific toolkit. Um, he happens to be a scientist who writes sublimely well, like no one else in the history of English literature, or certainly not in English science. He was unusually well placed to invent words because of his education and because of his profession. Um, he was well placed to expand the language, essentially developing what we might call um, rhetorical technology. Uh, to discuss the huge range of all the new discoveries and developments of the English scientific revolution. Um, and there are various reasons why Brown became a linguistic innovator, not just because he was able to, but because he needed to. I've just said, for example, that scientific practice and learning needed to have more language. They needed to have uh, a supple and copious descriptive arsenal for discussing its results. I mean, if every week you're reading about new things that are coming out, new discoveries, new animals, new experiments, new effects, new phenomena, you need to keep up verbally with all that. There have to be new words, new names for things. Um, so all the scientists were experiencing this, and Brown is partly solving some of the problem. It needs technology or terminology. Um, this is also uh, a period when anyone who eventually became a scientist had been trained not scientifically, but as I suggested before, uh, they'd not been trained scientifically but rhetorically at grammar school or at university or both. Um, no scientist from uh, Galileo and Gilbert to Boyle and Newton and beyond had ever had one moment of formal scientific education. Not one of them ever did biology homework. Um, or sums at school, uh, or even at university. They had, however, read Ovid, Virgil, Homer, Theocritus, Cicero, the whole canon of classical poets and historians and orators and philosophers. Um, and because of that, they knew how to express themselves. They didn't necessarily know anything about science when they first came to it, but gosh, could they talk. Gosh, could they write. And by the way, this is exactly the same training that people like Shakespeare and Marlowe and Dunn had been trained in. So it's exactly the same milieu, intellectual milieu, that they're all coming out of. Brown was writing Pseudodoxia Epidemica, for example, uh, very literary, at exactly the same moment that Robert Boyle was commencing his first major scientific experiments on air pressure uh, and developing what we now call Boyle's Law. Um, the, or the gas law. And when um, it was the moment when embryonic scientific groups were taking shape in places like Oxford and London and beyond, um, groups that eventually became part of the Royal Society for the Advancement of Natural Knowledge in 1661. So it's a scientific age that's hungry for words, is, 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 is gathering to itself ever more people who want to do science, but who have this rhetorical verbal training. Uh, and use it in order to prosecute their scientific um, projects. Well, what sort of words does Brown actually need? 
I should say, by the way, before I talk about those words, that not everyone approved of Brown's lexical inventions, or indeed any lexical inventions. Um, Dr. Johnson, though he was a great admirer of Brown's writing in many ways, and certainly in his thought, diplomatically said in his life of Brown that his forcible expressions ventured to the utmost verge of propriety. And no, so and Noah Webster, who is of course Dictionary Johnson's American counterpart, was outraged uh, by Brown's language, which he regarded as not even English. So you have a whole range of uh, opinions among the lexicographers there. Um, I said before that Brown is the second greatest. Uh, literary neologizer in the language after Shakespeare. And the reason I can claim this is by looking at the OEDs, the Oxford English Dictionary's curious database of its top 1,000 sources. Um, a subscription, an electronic subscription to the Oxford University, uh, Oxford English Dictionary is very expensive, but if you have access, as perhaps you do here, to one, I highly recommend you're using it and looking at it. It's absolutely fascinating. You can get lost in it, it's so interesting. Um, and not just because of Brown, it's just, a, it's just a fascinating way of looking at the thing that we use every day, the language. And in this database of the top 1,000 sources, um, single authors and periodicals and anthologies and dictionaries, the Bible, to name just some of the major sources, are ranked in a sort of greatest <coughs> hits index. And there are several indexes. One uh, parameter, one index, is what I'm calling citational the citation quotient or citational frequency. Um, and that's simply how many times in the whole of the OED a particular source is used to illustrate the meaning of a word. Um, uh, and here, the, t uh, the Times of London comes first and Shakespeare is second. Now, that in itself, I think, is an unequal comparison if you think about it, because Shakespeare was a single individual whose uh, writing career lasted for about 20 years, whereas the Times has been going for over 200, and it has thousands of people who've written for it. Um, but it also may be biased in favor of Shakespeare, as many things in the OED are, um, who is, of course, the greatest Englishman of all time, as we all know, and who also gobbles up uh, an enormous share of our national attention. So there are provisos, what I'm saying is there are provisos to be made about using all, any of this information absolutely literally or naively. Um, there are biases in all dictionaries. Um, and using the not altogether neutral OED as our database and excluding things like dictionaries, which I think have the unfair advantage of needing to list every word there is, so they naturally always win. Um, uh, Shakespeare is more often quoted in the OED as an example of usage than any other individual. But what about writers who actually originate words? Um, uh, either originate by making up a new word or they take an existing word and apply a new meaning to it. Um, so, well, among the writers who originate um, new words uh, or extend them, I mean, for example, um, technology as a word for terminology is an example of the second. The word technology existed, but it didn't mean what we mean by it or what Brown meant by it, and he uses it to mean terminology. That's an example of um, originating a word, uh, sorry, of, of, um, of uh, uh, applying a new sense to a word. Um, and this is where it gets interesting. The source for the most words originated in some sense or another is the philosophical transactions of the Royal Society. This is the world's oldest scientific journal founded in the 1660s and still going. So it's not totally surprising that more brand new words 
turn up here, a journal of scientific discovery, than anywhere else. And in that list, by the way, Shakespeare is, uh, is fifth. So the Filtrans is there, and uh, I forget what's first. It's a dictionary, so it kind of doesn't count. But um, Shakespeare is fifth. Uh, interesting, Brantley Brown is 25th, so that's pretty good. Uh, of the top 1,000, he's 25th. Um, uh, the third ranked source for the most existing words used in a new way, a new and original sense, is also the philosophical transactions. Um, uh, and Shakespeare, uh, sorry, it's, I said third ranked source is uh, philosophical transactions, so it's still pretty high up, but here Shakespeare's first. So he's the first person to take existing words and then kind of swerve them in some way and make them mean something new. Um, all this, I think, reminds us, and I'm talking really about the filtrans here, um, that science and scientific writing in a period like this one is going to be obviously the source of many new words because it's a field in which uh, a lot of new words have to be uh, introduced in order to accommodate the expansion of knowledge. Um, and if that's sort of a given, then we might expect uh, that the greatest scientists, the ones who produced the most striking new experimental results and developed the most important new theories, in other words, not Brown, um, would also be major wordsmiths. Um, but we'd be wrong about that. For, I'll give you an example. Isaac Newton, you know, no question, one of the two or three greatest scientists who's ever lived, doesn't even figure in the top 1,000. Probably because so much of his writing is in Latin or was mathematical or both. Not his fault, but interesting. Robert Boyle, who is the father of modern chemistry, on the other hand, was a very keen stylist in English and fretted all the time about his language. Um, but even he only just makes, uh, makes it into the top 100. So he's well behind Brown. And Robert Hooke, who is the inventor of just about everything and is a colleague of Boyle's, um, uh, and also, by the way, is the first professional salaried scientist ever, um, is well out of the top 500 hit parade. He's in the top 1,000, but not the top 500. Um, so of everyone and everything on the list in the 16th and 17th centuries that could, by any stretch of the imagination, be called scientific, Thomas Brown outranks them all. Indeed, if we discount uh, journals in, of his own time and of our own day, Brown is the OED's highest rated scientific source coming even above the Lancet and Nature. He's, um, for example, I think, I, I think this is all here. Yeah, he's um, number 70 uh, in the most quoted list. He's number 25 in the invention of new words list or origin quotient. And he's 39th as a developer of new meanings for existing words. I think that's a remarkable statistic. It shows us as literary readers of 17th century writing that scientific distinction, the genius of Boyle and Newton, for, for example, is largely unconnected with lexical ingenuity. It's, it's instead somebody like Brown, a capable but not an outstanding scientist who's able to expand the language to this degree. Brown himself might have called this a signality, and that's a word he invented. Um, it means a striking indication, a signality. And this signality is, in Brown, produced by his unusual intersection of the lexical, literary, and imaginative uh, aspects of his character and writing on the one hand, and the empirical, investigative, and documentary tendencies of the period's intellectual undertakings. I hope you can see that. Um, 
Brown's word making and lexical creativity falls into several categories. Uh, first, he has straightforward new naming or the invention of words. That's what I was calling the origin quotient um, in the previous slide. Um, for example, he takes a word, he takes a word, um, he makes a word bisect or cut into two. Perfectly straightforward word, we would think. Well, it had not existed. And it's strange that this very obvious invention from the Latin bi plus secare, to, to, to cut, um, had not been invented earlier. But it hadn't, so he comes up with it. Similarly, he invents biped, cryptography, anticipate, hallucination. These are all Brownian inventions. He has uh, more subtle extensions of the language in uh, the form of uh, adjustments to existing words in form or meaning. For example, the word additionally, quite a, quite a kind of boring, ordinary word. It's interesting that additional, the adjective additional uh, for supplementary existed. It meant then what it means now. Uh, but weirdly, that was a fairly recent addition, a late 16th century addition. And Brown then takes it and turns it into an adverb. And it's the same word that we use today. So we already had additional. We still use it that way. He gives us additionally, and we still use it in the same way. Similarly, anatomically, he comes up with from the word anatomical. Itself also, like additional, a very recent word, one that doubtless had arisen uh, to accommodate all the new investigations that were going on in, uh, of the body in um, Renaissance medicine. Another kind of Brownian um, word smithery is the revival of little used or, or antique words that had fallen out of use. For example, coniferous, to suggest um, non-deciduous trees. Um, this is a brown invented adjective based on conifer, which had existed in the 14th century. But it had not been used since then. And um, by the way, the not infallible OED, um, as so often gets this wrong, and they attribute coniferous to John Evelyn some years later, who was, of course, a contemporary and admirer of Brown's. Um, and in fact, Evelyn probably got the word coniferous from Brown. So you know, I've written to the o OED and said, you're absolutely wrong about this. It's Brown. <laughs> uh, I'm a Brown nerd, I confess. So, um, um, uh, so coniferous is, his, is Brown's extension of the little known and and now uh, antique and unused word, um, conifer. Other examples of this kind of revival that he uses are ambient, extinction, and permeable. Now, obviously, extinction is not in the Darwinian sense, because they haven't got that sense. But he means as in to extinguish a can <coughs> or you know, to put out a fire or something, or to extinguish life, extinction in that sense. But again, it was a word that hadn't been used, and he brings it back. Um, he borrows some of the latest new words. Some of these may surprise you. Conservation, ascetic, texture, monarchical, abstrusi abstrusities. These are words that are, he doesn't invent, but he's read them within the last year or two and then puts them into his own work. Um, so he doesn't originate them, but he eagerly uses them um, and helps to embed them uh, in the language by using them in his own writing. And finally, uh, Brown likes to introduce and naturalize foreign or words or foreign roots. For example, and these are very weird words, uh, balbutiers, which means stammering, uh, blicity, which means lisping. These are all medical words because they're to do with diseases of the tongue, apparently. Um, stammering and lisping were thought to be uh, complaints of the tongue. Um, inquinated, 
meaning polluted. Okay, we still, I mean, the Italians still use um, inquinato to mean uh, polluted. So um, it, it, it's a still existent word somewhere, but Brown brings this into English. Now, inquinated hasn't really, hasn't really lasted as, as Balbutis and Blicity have not. But, so not all of them succeed, but he's, he brings them in. One thing that's especially interesting about Brown's neologisms is that so many of them are adjectives or adverbs the parts of speech that modify things or actions. And he produces relatively few new verbs, also a very odd feature. Um, and I've thought about this quite a lot, and it's, it's almost as if the gaps he needs to fill in the language were not the names for things or actions, but instead words to describe them. So his particular extensions are ways of, shall we say, refining description rather than, than actual new naming or not solely new naming. Um, if we think about uh, what kinds of new learning and discovery were going on in the early modern world, um, and what Brown himself was doing in his own intellectual endeavors, this actually makes a lot of sense. Um, the early modern scientific writer and investigator was confronted by several philological difficulties. Newly observed specimens, processes, events, and transient phenomena had to be described, recorded. But it was by no means settled how to structure such descriptions and what language ought to be used. There was no genre for talking about new scientific uh, discoveries. Excuse me. <coughs> Sorry. Um. <coughs> Beg your pardon. And. Um, I think, I mean, it's, it's worthwhile remembering that, you know, the, the lab report or, you know, the scientific article, it doesn't exist or, it only, or only vaguely exists in the form of a letter in the, <coughs> I beg your pardon, oh, um, I'm doing a Theresa May now. Um, <laughs> tell me if that falls down. Um, 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 there were no lab reports or, 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 or scholarly articles or, or accepted ways that you told what your scientific results were. So you kind of had to busk it. Um, and um, there were various answers given to, not only to the problem of how you write, you know, what form you write science in, but what language you use to write it. And believe me, lots of science is written in verse in this period or in the form of fables. So how you do this is really not at all clear and not decided. Brand new words might help. Uh, what were called inkhorn terms or uh, obscure scholarly inventions that were mainly incomprehensible to order, ordinary users of the language. I've already had some of these uh, up on the on the screen, and Brown contributes contributes many more of these, like crucigerous, meaning cross-shaped, or allery to do with wings, amphidromical of the hearth. I mean, who's ever needed that word? Um, castrensial, which has to do with Roman camps, castra. Um, but it may also specifically, it's a little hard to tell from the way he uses it, may actually refer to the precise distance between Roman encampments. So talk about a really obscure word. It is castrensial, um, meaning it's, I don't know, 23 miles or whatever the distance was. Um, and also instead of new and unfamiliar words, description might consist of long inventories and qualifications such as Georgius Agricola's compound adjectives to describe various kinds of soils, for instance, as meager, unctuous, in intermediate, or porous, dense intermediate, which is one way of doing it. Or look at this very bristling description, which I can't even read out because it's mostly all um, uh, uh, 
I've just lost the word. Abbreviations. Abbreviations, thank you. Thank you. It's the middle of the week. I taught six hours yesterday, and I'm not really an accomplishment, so I just want you to know that. Um, uh, so this is um, a bristling record of the English uh, plant poetry, <coughs> which gives is given in kind of abbreviated note form. Um, all the different names for the plant from all the different herbalists and botanical authorities. So Gesner, Camerarius, Brumphius, Matioli, Fuchsius, from which we get fuchsia. Um, these are all um, Gerard, that's, the, that's Gerard's herbal. So it, that, these are all the different names that th this plant has been given, that poetry has been given. Um, this is, by the way, yes, John Ray, his Catalogus Plantarum, which is a very remarkable work, um, and is just a whole book full of this kind of description. Um, you have to be very committed to read through it. Um, the project of naming and describing was endless, and was in some respects the main empirical task of 17th century scientists. In order to talk about the natural wor world effectively, every single thing had in it had to be identified and named and described. And that's what Brown is partly involved in doing. Um, this is Brown talking to uh, Christopher Merritt, who is a famous naturalist. Um, and he does a lot of linguistic business with local Norfolk people who live by land and sea, um, especially those on the broads and on the North Norfolk coast, um, the hunters and farmers and fishermen, and so on, whom he paid to bring him interesting specimens, and whom he obviously quizzed about their names for plants and animals. And here we see him using that knowledge in a letter to a naturalist, uh, this is Christopher Merritt, in another part of England, <coughs> trying to work out which birds reside where and what they're called in each place. You can imagine the difficulty of this without the internet and without, you know, images that you can send back and forth. Have you a yarwhelp, barker, or latrator, a marsh bird about the bigness of a godwit, the bill two inches long, the legs about that length, the bird of a brown or russet color? I am much unsatisfied on the names given to many by countrymen. This is Brown talking. Fulica and Cotta Anglorum are different birds, though good resemblance between them. So some doubt may be, may be made whether it be to be named a coot, except you set it down as Fulica nostris, our, our Fulica, and Cotta Anglorum, English, English coot. Here Brown yokes possible Latin names, local folk names, and notices that there is a choice to be made between the Latin fulica, the genus of birds that includes coots and moorhens, and cotta. This is possibly his Latinized rendition of the Dutch name for that bird, which is kurt, uh, K-O-E-T. He goes on, many sorts of wild ducks pass under names well known unto fowlers, though of no great signification. By that he means the, the names don't mean anything in any, any rational or scientific sense. As smee, widgeon, arts, anchors, noblets. I don't even know whether noblets still exist, but I love that word. Um, countrymen are not the best nomenclators, he concludes. Um, the English naturalists were constantly asking each other if they knew of names for things, desperate to nail down agreed ways of identifying species. And he does this with taxonomical description when he writes to Christopher Merritt, who's actually putting together also a book of uh, British flora, a bit like the um, uh, Catalogus plantarum that, uh, plantarum that, uh, that John Ray made. Um, so talking about a curious and unknown tree fungus that appears to have no convenient Latin name, he says, Unto some it seemed to resemble some noble or princely ornament of the head, and so might be called fungus regius. Unto others a turret, 
top of a cupola or lantern of a building and so might be named fungus pterygoides, pinacularis or lanterniformis. You may name it as you please. I mean, he's basically throwing up his hands and saying, I don't know, um, just choose something and you know, we'll go with that. Brown also solves the problem of word shortage rhetorically, as he does here with a little trick that allows him to use an inkhorn or hard word, and at the same time to introduce it into the language as a usable item. And that trick, that rhetorical trick, is the doublet, <clears throat> the phrase that gives us an either or pair of possibilities. And Brown's doublets are very famous. It's one of his stylistic quirks that um, have, has been written about a great deal. Um, the doublets here are crown or regis. Uh, turret or uh, pterygoides, hard to say, cupola or pinacularis, lantern or lanterniformis. So those are, those are doublets. Um, here are some more of his doublets, just for fun. These are mostly um, plant-based, although not entirely. Um, Brown does this sort of thing all over the place, making these doublets. And it's one of the signal features of his prose, as I've said. He uh, characteristically yokes a learned with a demotic word, so um, collicular or, and then he says supporting or closing leaves, or my favorite, notonecton or water beetle. I mean, who knew that a water beetle is a notonecton, but we all know that. So, um, so we can take that out into our, you know, our, 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 our usage and practice notonecton on our friends and, and reintroduce it into the language. Um, as I say, he does this all over the place by yoking the learned and the demotic words together. In other words, sort of getting to have his cake and eating it as well. Um, another one of my favorites is um, canopion or natnet. I love the idea that you know you, you you know it's buggy out. So you say, dear my dear, please draw the canopion or the natnet. Um, it's a, it's a wonderful sort of willingness to entertain the the, the most demotic, the most simple, the most obvious kinds of. Um, Formations with these, you know, a Greek in that in that case, um, the Greek for gnat net or or mosquito net. Um, <clears throat> canopian or gnat net, phavaginites or uh, or or honeycomb stone, arbustitum or thicket, notonectin or water beetle, coagulum or rennet, uh, tenuifolius or narrow leafed. Um, all quite useful words in lots of ways. Um, this dueling or binary habit lets him use a completely obscure foreign or invented word like notonecton and instantly define it, define it in a plain English word. Uh, and the plain English is itself often a new formation, as in natnat. He invents natnat. I mean, I don't know how much credit he gets for that because it should have occurred to other people, but anyway. So he's introducing canopion and he's inventing natnat in one and the same uh, Dublin. And this practice of generating ever more words and terms for the rapidly expanding horizons of natural philosophy could also produce almost comic confusion and e even irritation. Color descriptors are a good example. Uh, in this period, new dyes and thus new colors were emerging. Uh, partly from early chemistry, but also from global trade that brought um, new natural substances to Britain from its burgeoning empire. So there were quite simply more colors to be named and more reasons, especially commercial ones, for doing so. It's a situation which we still see in the inventively named brands of modern paint colors by Dulux and Farrow and Ball, you know, dead salmon and mouse's back and string and all those kind of, you know, quaintly old-fashioned Farrow and Ball kinds of names. Um, Samuel Gilbert, who's a horticultural writer uh, of the period, uh, is particularly concerned with flowers. And he comes up with a whole spectrum here of blues and browns. Um, 
uh, even if these are clearly, at least to us, not uh, very specific. For example, he says, uh, bluish purple, sky color, pale sky color, great blue, watch it, light blue, pale blue, rich blue, and then for browns, liver color, hair color, clove color, willow color, mouse color, greenish hair color, <laughs> light tawny, and dark hair color. So, I mean, what is greenish hair color when hair and green are not themselves <coughs> very spe uh, specified? Um, Robert Boyle, his contemporary, comes up, for example, with the word pavonaceous from the Latin pavo for peacock, and complain, um, so pavonaceous is sort of peacock color, whatever that is exactly, because he's describing the color that on peacocks is very iridescent anyway, so it's a little hard to know exactly what he means by it. Um, and Boyle complains, I want proper words to express certain colors in our language. Um, the French scientists, unlike Thomas Brown, were particularly troubled that good new words for colors, in fact, tended to come from artisans, uh, deplorably demotic sources, non-learned sources, from painters and dyers and weavers. Um, after John Evelyn stated that um, there exists up upward of 160,000 types of soil, his friend John Beale, also a horticulturist, um, querulously decided that I cannot undertake to particularize all kinds of soil, no more than to compute how many syllables may be drawn from the alphabet the number of alphabetical elements being better known than the ingredients and particles of soil as chalk, clay, gravel, sand, marl, <coughs> and tenaciousness, color, and innumerable other qualities showing endless diversities. So basically, he's saying there's just too much stuff out there to do things by these, um, shall we say, um, uh, compound adjectives, um, or even to, uh, to new name each of these different um, kinds of compounds. Um, so clearly there's a limit uh, in the process of particularization through naming or the making of such adjectives, and, or even of Brownian doublets. Um, Brown makes a theologically important vegetable inquiry when he uh, explores the identity of the forbidden fruit. Um, that it was an apple partly stems, he speculates, from the similarity of uh, ma or malum, malum with a, with a long a, malum for apple in Greek and malum for evil in, in Latin. And he tells us that any secure identification is going to be obstructed by various other problems, historical, uh, linguistic, and geographical facts. So he's got a whole essay about this. And he says that climate may distort uh, the different species that the term apple refers to, for example, in the Middle East and in Western Europe. Um, biblical names are often translated into uh, non-Hebrew languages uh, by analogy to local plants rather than with any scientific specificity. And incorrect botanical names uh, from ancient times may also deceive us. Um, all these are potential problems. In other words, a, a theological problem you know, what apple it was that Adam and Eve ate becomes a, a philological doubt. What's the actual thing that they ate? Um, and what was it called? And that in turn becomes this problem of scientific taxonomy. What was the species? Brown wants to know two things, what fruit they ate and what to call that fruit. So he runs in this essay, he runs through a list of synonyms for various terms for the apple in Greek, Latin and Hebrew, he knew those languages well, so it was very well placed to do this. Um, these are the languages of the Bible, of course. And using his linguistic information from ancient languages, he can safely propose that the fruit of knowledge could have been a vine, or possibly some kind of grape, an Indian fig tree, the Persian apple, the golden apple, the cherry, the pear, a kind of citron, the arbor vitae, the elder, 
and this is my favorite, the banana. <laughs> I love the idea of the banana of knowledge. Um, <laughs> and, and then he throws in the silly pun. He says, after this fruit, curiosity fruitlessly inquireth. In other words, we're not going to find out the answer. And he concludes by saying that since we can't make any certain answer to the question of what it was or what it was called, what it should be called, we should stop wasting our time and intend, attend to the really important issue, which is, um, you know, that they did it. Rather than trouble, rather trouble ourselves that it was tasted, he says, than troubling ourselves in its decision, in other words, in, in, in its name. So let's, you know, let's get down to the theological problem. Adam and Eve fell by being disobedient and eating the apple, and that's the important thing. So he does all this philological stuff and says, nah, it's not really that important. Let's, you know, let's not worry about that. So quit fussing about learned side issues and think instead about the great uh, crisis for mankind that it represents, the, the fall from grace. So for Brown, there's pleasure in the kinds of queries and naming that he enjoys so much, but also peril, because it can deflect our attention from the truly important facts of the natural world and its purpose in the history of mankind. Well, I'm going to conclude now. You'll be pleased to hear. Um, the science of the mid-17th century had need, as I've been suggesting, of an ever more ample word store to meet the increase in experimental, observational, and theoretical ideas and knowledge. Um, and it's a strange and unexpected benefit that every major scientist and natural historian had, like Brown, been trained not scientifically, but linguistically, rhetorically, and verbally. And that they brought these highly honed rhetorical and philological skills uh, to the lab and to the field and used these as a kind of linguistic technology, a te technology in some senses as, re uh, uh, as important as any apparatus of the laboratory. Science and its practitioners required technologies of expression, and so it's not, after all, that surprising that a highly literary writer with scientific training like Thomas Brown made such a hefty neological contribution to it. His contribution is ingenious on many levels, as I hope I've been sort of suggesting. Aside from sheer quantity, which is undeniable, he brings classical philological training to bear on investigative problems. He has social interactions both with learned savants um, and with unlettered local people that gives him an unusual range of lexical material. And he ties all this together with what we would now call the experimental method, the observational and experimental habits that char characterize modern empirical science. For Brown, an unidentified specimen could potentially bear a Latin or a folkloric or a constructed name. For example, a reed chalk, which is some local name for some local bird, uh, can also, he says, and it's some crow-like bird, can also be a funko or a corvix marinum, a sea crow or a sea corvix of some kind. Um, and he carefully records and enjoys local names, a crackling teal, a sea dotterel, the bee bird, the sea mouse. These are all Brown's recordings of names of species that he'd like to find out more about, find out what they really are in the learned world, but hasn't got there yet. And these amusing nominal terms are his least distinctive contributions, no matter how much fun they are, because his most pressing need is descriptive and adjectival, rather than purely taxonomical. He needs names for things, but really more than that, he needs, needs um, uh, qualifiers to make description more fine-grained. His ability is not only to resurrect useful old words or to naturalize Greek and Latin terms in English, but above all, to adjust and manipulate the lexical range already available to him in English. Um, 
even and uh, so even though he gives us brand new words like coma, ambidextrous, electricity, antediluvian, and hallucination, it's his free play with existing English words uh, to make extensions, adaptations, and alterations to suit the needs of science. Words like explication which does not mean to explain, but means the unfolding of a flower as it opens up. That's to explicate. Um, uh, or flatuous of the wind. And inversedly, which is a word first used by Brown as an adverb. Inverse ex exists, but inversedly does not. And I'm not even sure about inversely, which I should look up. Um, and it's these kinds of extensions and adaptations that I want to suggest um, in conclusion. Um, that signal his most important endowment of the language of science. Thank you. Thank you so much, Claire. That, um, it, you know, it's a, a sort of marathon of, well, a marathon of words. And I don't know whether Brown would have used that term. But anyway. Um, Probably not, actually. It's fascinating. And I'm so glad that we've got, uh, we've got it captured, hopefully, Touchwood, um, to, to be able to sort of rev revise and, and sort of uh, listen back at a later date because I don't know about everybody else but I often find that really useful to be able to go back over um, we haven't got a lot of time I, I'm just going to sort of set a set a few things because we 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 need to be out by 8.30 and I think all the shutters come down at 8.40 so we'll need to be sort of fairly briskly out um, I was going to suggest that anybody that does want to sort of carry on any sort of conversation about Brown could um, retire to the Garnet Woolsey on the, just on the corner of the marketplace. Um, or the Sir Garnet. The Sir Garnet, as it is days. now, the Sir Garnet. Uh, I'm sure it. I'm sure it won't mind being being mis mis uh, uh, misnamed. Like <laughs> um, and 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 hopefully we'll just have a, a time for a couple of questions. Um, I just want to wrap up slightly before we have the questions, if that's all right, just to point out that if you pick up one of one of these flyers on the way out, it's got a list of all the other events. And there's uh, tomorrow is, um, there's a tour in St. Peter Mancroft Church. There's also another one at the Archive Centre in the afternoon of some of the uh, documents that they have, including Brown's will and, um, a, and a couple of his original publications. So um, just, just have a sort of go through. There's the Oxford English, is, uh, apparently the OED, the Oxford English Dictionary, are going to have a Brown word of the day tomorrow. I'm not quite sure how we'll find that, but yeah. yeah. So um, yeah. I think I think Hugh managed managed that one. Um, and the OED thank you. is free to access in all Norfolk libraries and at home with your library card. Yes. Oh, you've got such a treat. You yeah. can come into the library and do it, or you can do it from yeah. home on the internet. But yeah, I've had it. Add that in as well. And, and for, for any artists amongst you, it, it also um, the call for artists for, for Cly 18, which happens next uh, next year, next July and August. The theme is is a quote from Brown, um, which I, I can never quite remember. It's uh, offhand. The greater the distance, the clearer the view. Is is the um, theme? So we, you know, we've got, we'll have a whole art exhibition, um, which lasts a month next year in in North Norfolk, um, which which will be based on work from that, from the that world, quote. The so world seen from space. <laughs> yes, maybe. Um, so and and Hugh himself is going to be conducting some of the experiments next week that that Claire referred to. I think you're going to be dissolving your wife's. Engagement ring? Something like that. And 
so you know, I mean, it just all all I'm really saying is go through this. Um, there's there's some little flies over there as well with the web address. So that's something else that you know. Get used to um, referring there because if you're interested in Brown, there's a sign up form there. You'll get you'll get mail little mail shots every now and then, not not terribly frequently. Um, and we'll also be at the castle. I think John, who's there somewhere, John Underwood at the back there, is uh, going to be with me in the castle on Saturday. And um, we'll be talking about the Garden of Cyrus. Plus, um, John's going to bring in some books as well of uh, that, that he has. So have a good look. So just we've got quickly five minutes. I would say if uh, anybody has any burning questions for Claire. Okay. Right. Um, well, on the medical side, in medical experiments, did he advance uh, medical knowledge through any experiments? Well, the thing that he's known for, uh, it, I mean, he does a lot of things in pseudodoxia which um, help some doctors think about certain aspects, usually anatomical. Um, my favorite, though, is he, he is credited with uh, an, the explanation of something called wax. And wax is, or grave wax, it's also called, and that is the tendency for buried bodies in certain kinds of humid conditions to produce or to become um, uh, a kind of impacted uh, fat. And this had been noted from, you know, Hippocrates. And Brown t thinks about it, talks about it, and explains <coughs> what's going on. And he's talking about the kind of, what we would call a kind of chemical um, uh, conversion of the substance of the body into this stuff. Um, I don't, I don't know if that counts as medical, but it's definitely anatomical of a certain kind. And he does things like, you know, he says, is it true that uh, the dead body of a woman will float on its front and the dead body of a man will float <laughs> on its back? You know, things like that. Um, I, Hugh, can you think of any, any um, important medical? I'm just trying to think. The thing that strikes me is that he, um, and this is indirect, but important, um, that he sort of inspired um, the, the teaching in medical schools of bedside manner. Yes, that's ah, a very good point. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a very the good way point. way he writes about that's a very good point. I mean, he, he's, I would say he doesn't originate that because he's learned that at Leiden. Yeah. But, but he, he's definitely one of the vanguard of the, the kind of new age kind of doctors in England who are not just kind of hearing by report what's wrong with a, with a patient or maybe having a quick, you know, sort of look at them from a great distance and then deciding what's wrong with them because this is what Galen would say which is how medicine more or less was practiced. But it's actually going in and you know, laying hands on sick people and asking them questions about what they feel, which is very unusual. I mean, it had been done a little bit by Hippocrates and a bit by Galen, and it's starting to be done in Italy, but this is a, a very new idea that the doctor is much more um, almost um, physically involved in the examination of the patient. Now, this doesn't seem strange to us, but it was very unusual then, and, he, and Brown is definitely um, uh, one of the vanguard of that kind of um, home practice, so to speak. I'm just going to go for Tom, but yeah. very, very quickly we've got... Two quick of, questions. Two, yeah. two um, the Bill of Mortalities you wrote, was that from London? They the Bill of Mortality was a London publication, okay. yeah. Second question, yeah. did you ever come to Norwich, Marion talked about 
the street furniture and outdoor yes. living room. Yeah. Did you ever come to Norwich when they built the living room around his statue in the Haymarket? No, I have a weird. I have. I can trumpet. I happened to be in the atelier in um, Carrara where they were making it, and I oh. just was. Go I didn't know they were doing anything for. I didn't know anything about it. I went in, and I said, like, th yeah. "There are these. There are these people there working on. You know, the, you can see bits of what's now in Hay Hill." hanging up on, you know, from chains and they're doing things to it. And I read in my crappy Italian said, you know, what are you making? And they said, oh, we're making this, this monument for Thomas Brown. And of course I nearly fell over because I was working on <laughs> Thomas Brown then. And I thought, well, heavens, where is it going? And they said, it is in Norwich. Uh, and, <laughs> and so I knew this was coming to Norwich probably before you did, but I, I didn't know what it was going to look like, obviously, because I saw oh, it was a very, a very what early version. Well, I, mean, I, I forget. What, was, when the, when yeah, the brain and the eye were installed, ago. it was well, exactly ten years ago. But yeah. no, you're, you're talking about when um, the, the J Japanese artist that built a room around the Pegram statue. Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. Room, room, you know, so you could go up a ladder and actually sort of be chatting with Thomas Brown at his height, yeah, like in his living room. Well, yeah. I this show somebody or other. Okay. He's on the again. It's on the website. Okay. There's a uh, this one. I thought he's got something like a post-it note on his head there. Um, and when I first, well, the first time I ever came to Norwich in the what I don't know, it was probably the late seventies. Um, I've been here most of my life, and um, he had a traffic cone on his head. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So there's, there's, there's also students. The, um, the jeweller on the, the guy who has the stool where you never actually see anybody because it's all full of scarves and belts and things like that. He's uh, he's uh, he strenuously argued not to have his stool moved when the Poirier work was installed, and he he persuaded. I uh, you know, I was in my job at the council then. He persuaded us not to be moved because he made himself an expert on both the Poiriers and on Brown. And he's actually a very good photographer and quite a shrewd writer. And he wrote a little piece called Pseudo-Retalia. <laughs> so he's, he's written about what Brown might be seeing around Hay Hill now. Um, and he's sitting there, he's, he's, he's on, in Photoshop, he's added some headphones and a sort of baseball cap. And he, he's, uh, so that's quite a, a humorous piece right. as well. I, I also ought to say, just before we finally close up, Although Claire very kindly said this is the sort of first event of, of a, a sort of what we hope will be an annual sort of Thomas Brown event, must also bear tribute to the people that have run things before, particularly at the anniversaries, and, and in particular Anthony Battishaw, yes. Tony Battishaw, who um, you can still buy his book in St Peter Mancroft Church, and it's a really, really handy introduction. Uh, he sadly died in 2015. So... I do regard myself and Hugh and Claire and the various people as carrying the baton on for an, for the next leg of the relay. As does Kevin um, Faulkner, who Kevin I thought Faulkner. I might see here tonight, but he's yeah. going to be appearing tomorrow. He's coming tomorrow. So we've got performance. Kevin has for 20 years been doing a sort of costume performance of Brown. So he'll be in here about in, in, in the forum at about three o'clock-ish and on Hay Hill at about one o'clock reading well performing brown he, he insists he's not reading it because he's not he's learnt. he's learnt. um so again more more Marion, could i could up. i make a really quick plug as well um as part of our big addition and the, the money that we got from the government to do it we had to um, do things for public consumption and one of the things we did was a an exhibition on brown and brown's curiosity at the royal college of physicians mm -hmm. which i I mean, I can say this because it was my postdocs who really did it. It's terrific. Um, but as part of that, we also made a film 
uh, called a quincunx or Sir Thomas Brown, which is on a kind of continuous loop there, but you can also look at it on YouTube, and you can also find a link for it on the Royal College of Physicians site and, and on the on, Thomas Brown yeah. site and on the Thomas Brown edition website. So I, it's, I think it is rather good, actually. It's quite funny. It's, it has a, an actor, a very good actor, playing Thomas Brown and yeah. cutting up a pomegranate and showing you a quincunx on the side, mm -hmm. inside a pomegranate, which is the kind of thing that he talks about. So that's quite fun to look at and <coughs> I hope quite um, informative as well. Great. Well, thank you all so much for coming. It's been a really good turnout for, for uh, the first event of this little series of events. I hope we get to see you at some of the other events and uh, if not just sign up on the website um, as I say the, uh, you know the, the, it's a sirthomasbrown.org.uk uh, address so just sign up there and then you'll be in the loop for any sort of further communications and thank you so much for coming.